Hello and welcome to this very special four episode mini series for World Gynaecologic Oncology Day. Starting on the 20th of September, we will be releasing an episode a week for four weeks. The theme for this year is Dare to Ask, so we'll be asking all the questions sent in by you and getting the answers from four incredible specialists. We have Professor Donald Brennan, who will be covering the surgical side of cancer. We have Dr. Karen Kadu, who will be focusing on genetics with a special interest in BRCA and Lynch syndrome. We have Helen Greeley, who is a psycho-oncologist with the NCCP, and she will be discussing the psychological implications of carrying the BRCA gene and also managing some of the psychological symptoms that can come with early menopause. And we have Louise Comerford, CNS in Hollis Street in St. Vincent's, who will be answering all of our nursing questions. We really hope you enjoy these four episodes. This season is kindly sponsored by CarePlus Pharmacy with all the proceeds being donated to the Emer Casey Foundation. The Emer Casey Foundation was founded in 2006 after the death at a young age of Emer Casey to ovarian cancer. We are so honoured to be a part of this movement to raise awareness of gynaecologic cancers and we hope we can help you find the answers to some of your questions. Welcome to the podcast, Louise. It's great to have you here. It's great to have another nurse actually on the podcast. <laughs> we actually, no, thank you so much. <laughs> we've, um, we had one other podcast uh, for our breast care episode and um, we had a nurse, it was Sinead Murta, and it was um, one of our most highly kind of rated podcasts. It's great to have nurses on. Just I think we, we have a good way of explaining things because we're so close to the ground with patients and stuff. So um, yeah, thanks so much for being involved. Um, so today we're going to focus mainly on um, the surgery surgical side and the preparation um, of surgery um, in relation to gynae oncology cancers. Um, and again, this is part of our um, Dare to Ask series. Um, so we most of our questions are questions that have been sent in directly by patients. So it's great to have you to be able to answer these questions for them. So we'll start off with um, our first question, which is if you have been referred to a gynae oncology oncologist, what can you expect at your first appointment? Thanks very much first of all for um, inviting me and include being a part of it. It's a real privilege, so I do really appreciate it. Um, so that's a really good question. I think sometimes um, it can be quite a daunting experience um, not knowing what to expect for your first appointment to see a gynecology oncologist. Um, so the important thing is you probably you will meet your consultant and you'll hopefully meet a CNS as well. And part of the um, consultation will involve being asked a set of questions and also you will probably have to go undergo a pelvic exam, which I think some people might not necessarily be prepared for. So um, knowing in advance can sometimes hopefully alleviate a little bit of those anxieties about coming in. Um, so the exam kind of is a two part. One part, the doctor will probably examine your abdomen and the next part will probably be a vaginal or a pelvic exam. So one piece of advice I would give is that when you check in, it's a quite a beneficial thing just to pop to the bathroom and just empty your bladder because sometimes when they're pressing the abdomen if you have a full bladder it can just be a little bit uncomfortable um usually what happens is is that you, there is um, an area where you can undress usually you just need to undress from the waist down um, and you'll always have a nurse or sometimes you can have a chaperone present for support if you need it um, what will happen is you'll lay on an examination table and you will be covered up with the drape just to preserve your dignity as well. And the doctor will come in and they will just discuss with you exactly what they're going to do every step of the way, which is really important. And at any time you want to ask a question or you want to find out what's happening next, it's really important that you sort of um, ask the doctor so you can get a bit of clarity if you have any concerns. 
So what the doctor will probably do first is just have a little feel of your abdomen or your tummy, whether you will just have a press around any feel for any lumps or bumps that may be there. And sometimes they also have a feel just around the groin as well, which is quite normal. The next part of the exam, they will have to do an internal exam. So that's where the doctor will actually have a look into the vagina. So that can be two parts as well. So what you'll be asked to do is just to bend your knees and to bring your feet as close to your bottom as is comfortable for you. And then you just gently fold your, your, your knees apart. And the doctor will then um, insert a speculum. So if you've ever been for a cervical check or a cervical smear test, it's quite similar to that. The important thing really with um, using a speculum is that the doctor can visualize or have a look at your cervix directly and have a look around at the vaginal walls as well. So that can be a really um, valuable assessment as part of your consultation with your doctor. Um, if they need to take a swab at that time, they will and they will let you know before that happens. Um, and another part of the exam, which some women can find a little bit more embarrassing or a little bit more uncomfortable, is a... It's called a bimanual abdominal or vaginal exam. What that means is that the doctor will press on your abdomen. They'll also have to insert a couple of fingers in just to have a feel of your cervix. But they can also feel your ovaries and they can feel your uterus. But be uh, reassured that um, the doctors do this with the utmost care and sensitivity. And it's a really helpful way to assess what your symptoms are. This is usually really quick. It doesn't take too long. At any point, if you have any questions, you just say. If any point you want to stop, you just say. And once the exam is over, you will have time just to get dressed and then you will have a sit down with the doctor and they will talk through with you any findings or any things of concern. And it's also a good opportunity then for you to ask any questions relating to the exam that the doctor has just done. Thank you so much, Louise. Um, and I think it would be just so reassuring for people coming in for an appointment like that, meeting somebody like you and just having it explained so clearly. So honestly, thank you. I think that will take a lot of the fear away from people as well and knowing that it is normal to have these exams done because I can imagine it is it is quite daunting. So thank you so much for explaining that um, as okay. clearly as you have. Um, so what questions might you be asked during that appointment? So usually when you come in, we... The doctor usually has an idea of what you've been referred for. They will have had a referral from a GP, perhaps, or a referral from another doctor from another hospital. So we'll have, you know, an idea of exactly what your presenting symptom is. However, the doctor will want to pick that open a little bit more and just get some more information, not just about the symptom that you came in with, but also just generally about your overall health and well-being. Some people call it a comprehensive health history is another way it's being described. So... Initially, they'll probably ask you what made you go to the doctor in the first place? What symptom lent you to go to the GP to get checked out in the first place? Um, depending on what you talk about, whether it was bleeding or whether it was pain or whether it was bloating, the doctor will unpick that a little bit more to get some more information. They'll also then just get a little background about the rest of your medical history. So do you have any other medical um, conditions at the moment? So things like, do you have high blood pressure? Do you have high cholesterol? Um, are you diabetic? just to get a, an, an idea of what your medical history is. They'll also probably ask questions about a surgical history. So have you ever had an operation before, even if that has happened as a child or even as an adult? Um, 
it's kind of important as well if you've ever had surgery to your, to your abdomen uh, or your tummy that's something important especially if your complaint is in and around that area they'll also ask questions about your gynecology history so things like when was your last period have you been through the menopause yet um have you ever had any children or have you had any pregnancies before if you have had children have you had a vaginal delivery or have you had a c-section They'll also ask questions like, um, are you a smoker? Have you smoked? Have you ever smoked? When did you stop smoking? Um, do you drink any alcohol? Again, really routine questions. We even do this as a, a nursing admission when you're clocking a patient into a ward. So are real common questions to ask. They'll also get asked questions about what your social situation is. So are you working? Are you um, caring for anybody with special needs? Are you living with people who depend on you? And this is just to get an idea about that if you need any treatment or surgery, how can we support you in the days after your surgery? So do you need a medical social worker involved when you're an inpatient? Do you need respite or convalescence? So the more details we can get around you and your life, we can hopefully prepare and plan treatment to think about all those things and not just the surgery that you need. So it gives us a good idea of how we can prepare properly for your treatment. Um, thanks a million for that, Louise. Um, and moving on from that, we know that some women who have a gynecology cancer may need surgery. Can you tell us a little bit how somebody could prepare for this uh, type of surgery? So we'll do things on our side as well, just for you to be aware of. So we'll do things like um, go through a consent form with you, organize any additional tests that you might need before surgery. Um, take some bloods and some for some people they may need to see an anesthetist beforehand uh, or it's called a preoperative assessment that's just to make sure that we can give the right care for you and just make sure that you are um, are safe enough to go through a general anesthetic for example um, but most of the treating hospitals will also give you information about um, things like whether you need to fast or not before surgery um, whether how long we predict that you will stay in hospital, what's commonly called a predicted length of stay, to enable you to prepare for your surgery too. Because knowing things like how long they expect you to stay is going to enable you to prepare in advance as well. Um, but what you can do is, is what I say is just be really organized. So things like knowing how you can get to the hospital and how you can get home is really, really important. Um, don't underestimate how planning to your route home. It's really, really important. Now, if most hospitals just don't have the capacity to fund transport anymore, I know that used to be back in the day, but there's just not that capacity anymore. So when you know who your point of contact is or your next of kin, as we used to call it, try and arrange for somebody to bring you home and pick you up if you can. And if you don't need anyone to bring you home, you can make sure you have the funds to get a taxi or get public transport, things like that. Some really good advice I've had from patients is who know they're going to go in for a procedure and stay in for a few days is that they've pre-ordered their food. They've had the shop delivered before they are coming home. Some people have even said they've done batch cooking. So they've had their dinners frozen, ready to go when they're home. One last thing for them to do when they go home. Um, from a sort of a health and wellness being, if you are a smoker, if you could cut down as best as you can. Studies have shown that even cutting down a cigarette can help um, wound healing that little bit better, can help reduce your risk of getting lung infections and things like that afterwards. So even if you can do that, that's great. If you are you someone who usually does a lot of exercise, if you are feeling well enough and you're happy that you can do walking daily before you do your operation or kind of maintain some similar level of exercise beforehand that you are well enough to do, 
that's absolutely something you should continue to do before you have your surgery. I think it's also um, simple things like washing your hair the night before. It's one last thing to do post-operatively having to worry about washing your hair. Um, and those things just make that time afterwards a little bit easier, I find. Yeah, absolutely. I think it's um, those little tips and tricks are so important, aren't they? Because sometimes in the haze of a diagnosis, you can kind of forget about all the little things that can make such a huge difference. Mm. Um, thanks a million for that. And I suppose just kind of linked into that, what will they need to bring with them going into the hospital? So there's a few things that are important. Um, really your medications, um, if you're on any regular medications, it's really important that you um, bring them with you or even have a list of your regular medications. You would have been asked before if you're on what medications you are on, and some things may need to be stopped beforehand, like an aspirin, for example, because that can lead to bleeding. This law will be gone through with you with your doctors and they need to this beforehand who may uh, ask that you stop these things, but it'll all be relevant to you. Um, bringing in the contact details of your next of kin, just in case we need to call somebody or update your family uh, after your procedure. It's really important to have those details. Um, I think the best thing is sort of less is more approach of what you're bringing into hospital with you. Unfortunately, you might not have a lot of storage space. You're only going to stay for a few days, hopefully. If you stay longer, just only bring the things that you need. Some patients have said to me that, you know what, night dresses are better than pajamas because if I have a catheter, the pajama bottoms just aren't going to work. Um, if you're a light sleeper, bring a sleeping mask with your earbuds. Those things to help your night get a little bit more comfortable. Um, flip-flops for the shower that's another thing a patient has recommended to me that they've said before really important to bring non-slip shoes what's really important after your surgery is mobilization and we will get you up out of bed we will get you walking so you need to bring a pair of shoes that you can comfortably walk around in the ward and we don't we don't want to slip trip or a fall definitely post-procedure most people bring valuable things such as a phone or a tablet if you're going to bring those things, that's absolutely fine. But just label everything, label your charger, label your phone, because if you're in a ward with a few people, those things all look the same and you just don't want to get yours mixed up with somebody else's. But on that, try not to bring anything too valuable. Um, things get lost, things get misplaced. You know, anything that's really important to you, just don't bother bringing it into the hospital. And that kind of ties in a little bit with jewellery. I know um, most women um, will be leaving their wedding ring on, for example, and that's absolutely fine. We can tape it. But if you have any other jewellery, just better off just leaving it at home. We don't want that to get caught up in the sheets. And it's happened before. It gets caught up in the, the, the laundry and you never see it again. So anything that's valuable and important to you, try and leave that. Sorry, try and leave that at home. That's brilliant. Um, thank you so much. And um, I suppose roughly how long could somebody expect to be off their feet after an operation? It really does depend on what you have done. So if you have... Um, a smaller procedure where you only might stay in a day or two. Um, so say, for example, a cone biopsy where they just take a, a little small cone of your cervix, for example, for a cervical cancer. Um, you should be up and about in the next day or two, but you might feel quite tired and quite fatigued. If you're having a bigger surgery, like a cytoreduction for ovarian cancer, you could be staying in for up to 10 days or even longer. You might need a lot more time to recover afterwards for when you get back home and get back to your baseline. Um, and also that doesn't take into account of some people, if they have to have chemotherapy or radiotherapy afterwards, you might need a significantly more time off work. 
And I think the important thing is to really listen to your body. And if you're really feeling tired and you're feeling fatigued and you're feeling that you're not ready to go back to work, that's absolutely okay. If you need more time, that also is absolutely okay. Um, I think for some people, if you are working, for example, if you look at citizensinformation.ie, there's really lots of great information there about things like sick pay. And if you're entitled to sick pay and things with work, that's really, really important. So I think it's take as long as you need I think really listen to your body. But for most people, as soon as they're four to six weeks after a surgery, you should start to feel like yourself. And it's really important that you're moving and exercising. That's like it's tolerable for you and get up and moving again. Um, so usually kind of in and around that time frame. But it's also dependent on how you feel. Thanks, Amelia and Louise. Um, and a lot of women have asked, are there any long term side effects associated with surgery that they should expect? I think that's a really, really good question. Um, and I think it, again, it's with gynecology, oncology, it really depends on, I suppose, your diagnosis and on what type of treatment that you have. But I think the ones that stand out for me really would be things like lymphedema. So we know the lymphatic system is has a lot of responsibilities and one of it is fighting infection. And if it gets disturbed or um, affected because the lymph nodes have been removed or because of radiotherapy, one of the longer uh, effects of that is lymphedema, which can present itself as sort of swelling um, in the lower limbs and in the ankles and sometimes in the groin and the genitalia as well. And that can sometimes happen weeks, months, or even sometimes years after you've had treatment. And that can be, you know, a really difficult thing to face sometimes. And I think if that does happen, what you can do is speak to your medical oncologist and make sure that you let them know that you have these symptoms and then they can refer you to a lymphedema specialist. Um, if there's not one in your hospital, um, you can definitely link in with your GP and they may know of some local um, lymphedema specialists in the community. Um, and unfortunately, if there isn't, sometimes you can access that by going um, privately. So there are ways out there to get support um, the important thing is to speak up and let us know if you have those symptoms. One of the other things I think, especially for um, women going through a surgery is if you've had your ovaries removed, unfortunately, if you're premenopausal, you will enter menopause and that's a lot to deal with. Um, and trying to manage those side effects can be of itself quite a challenge. And I think, you know, most of the side effects with the menopause would be things like the hot flashes or vasomotor symptoms is what they're called. Um, sometimes people report brain fog. You can have um, vaginal dryness. Sometimes you can get incontinence and sometimes you can get, um, it can be a bit painful uh, during intercourse. Um, and I think if these symptoms do develop, and if you can have HRT, that's a really important conversation to have with your doctor and your nurse specialist. So if you do experience those, those are things that you should be and um, that you could discuss with your nurse specialist. And you'll find routinely that those are those questions that you will be asked when you have your follow up appointments, if you are experiencing these symptoms, because the support will be there for you should you go through those. Um, so those are the really the big things that sometimes people can experience in terms of long term side effects after surgery. That's great. Thank you so much. Um, and who will be the patient's main point of contact when they're undergoing treatment? I'd say for the majority of, of our patients, you will always have a clinical nurse specialist to, to speak with. Um, you can always speak to your doctor as well. They'll always be, um, be able to be contacted. But most um, 
consultants will have a clinical nurse specialist working with them and they are always um, more than happy to to help and are always going to be a contact point for you. Most of us have an email or most of us would have a phone um, number and I would usually say give us a call if I don't answer leave me a voice message I will always call you back but you will always have that point of contact for the years um, after your treatment and if you're having radiotherapy you probably will have a link over with the radiotherapy side as well so you will have a lot uh, you'll have a few kind of people on your side and going forward you know I hope there's going to be more survivorship CNS's like what my role is and um, to be another sort of um, advocate in your corner um, for those years after you complete treatment or during treatment and um, for those sort of surveillance after you have your cancer diagnosis. It's really great to see how uh, prominent the survivorship has become, and it's great to see. Um, mm-hmm. Moving on from that, we know that intimacy is a hugely important topic post gynecological treatment. Um, mm-hmm. Oftentimes, we know women can feel really embarrassed to speak about it and can feel a bit unsure who the right person mm-hmm. to go to for advice. Um, I suppose what issues may what issues may women face um, and can you tell us what advice they can follow when being intimate post-treatment? This is a really good question um, and I think it's a really, really important question and, you know, I think it should be probably talked about a lot. Um, It's really, really usual and really normal to feel um, concerned or worried about intimacy after a gynecology, uh, oncology uh, diagnosis. And I think, you know, I know from personal experience when I have patients come in that it is something that we do talk about. um, And there's sometimes where some patients might not want to discuss it. And at some points, others are really happy to. And that's just really dependent on how you are and where you are in your stage of your treatment. Um, Sometimes with surgery, um, people can experience um, vaginal shortening or shrinking, as they call it, um, or stenosis if you've had radiotherapy. You know, fertility can be affected. If you're going through radiotherapy, you can feel really fatigued. Um, going through chemotherapy, you could just feel tired and not feeling like you have much of an appetite. You're not feeling feeling a bit nauseated. So lots of side effects from treatment can just make you feel you just don't want to engage in any intimacy. And I think it's really important to, to understand that that's absolutely normal and absolutely understandable. Um, and I think that what is really important that if you're feeling um, this way and if you have concerns, or you want to talk about it, you definitely can be approach your doctor and you can definitely approach your clinical nurse specialist. And you'll find that when you have your appointments to follow up, we will be asking you about your vaginal health. And that sometimes naturally navigates into um, intimacy that you may or may not be experiencing with your partner. I think there's also um, other supports out there if you want to even go to someone like a sex therapist or a systemic psychotherapist. There are some hospitals will have psycho-oncologists as well. Um, and I think the important thing is that you give yourself time um, Whenever you feel ready to be intimate again, that is the right time for you. And open communication with your partner as well it is really, really important because, you, you know, invariably you'll find uh, your partner will probably have the same concerns as you will. And just by you talking together about it is just as important as um, acknowledging it. And I think you will find that the nurses will talk about it and, you know, um, it's really important that if you feel you need more help, that you speak to the nurses involved and they can definitely give you support for that. And I think, um, and I know um, 
we talked about the launch of thisisgo.ie um, and I know that's specifically uh, designed for women with cervical cancer, but there is some really good articles on sexual functioning and the impact of cancer on treatment on women and surgery and sexual function and radiotherapy and sexual function. It's a really, really um, excellent article. And there's a really good um, video as well by um, Ivana Mara talking about that too. So I think even if you don't have a cervical cancer diagnosis, you can still log on and get some really valuable information there. That's great, Louise. And we might actually share some of those uh, links to our Instagram as well. And people Bonamara from one of the first the first episode that we did actually, and she just has a great way of explaining things. So I've no doubt Absolutely. that it's really good. And actually, video. I should have said as well, you've a really good podcast on fatigue. <laughs> I said that's a really <laughs> I should have said that's actually a really good podcast as well. Yeah, she did a great job as well. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So I would advocate for anyone with fatigue to uh, to listen to that as well. Brilliant. Thanks, Louise. And uh, what websites can women uh, women reference? I know you spoke about This Is Go there. Which, I have. Uh, yeah. So I would definitely advocate for thisisgo.ie. And I, like I said, I know it's primarily now for cervical cancer, but it's not just about that. There is a lots of topics on um, how to deal with the, the financial aspect, the practical matters, um, how to talk to children with can- uh, about a cancer diagnosis. Um, there's a great service directory as well uh, for the entire country. So if you're living in, in outside of Dublin, that you can get access to um, a directory of services available to you. There's also, you know, the Irish Cancer Society also has lots of great information. Um, ARC is great for lots of support as well. And even over in the UK, there's the NHS website and there's Macmillan, which I, you know, I used to work in the UK and I used to refer to Macmillan a lot. It does have a lot of really valuable information. But sticking to things like this is go.ie, Irish Cancer Society, Macmillan, they're really good, reliable, you know, evidence-based websites. Um, and especially um, I'm going on about this is go.ie a lot, but you know, a lot of people contributed, um, a lot of allied health professionals who have a wealth of experience and knowledge who, you know, contributed their time and have just given some amazing articles and lots of really relevant information. So I can, even if you don't have a cervical cancer diagnosis, even if you have a cancer diagnosis, it's a really good resource to take advantage of. That's great, Louise. And you, you should definitely be plugging it. We've like, <laughs> been a self-promotion. <laughs> and it's great that it's Irish as well, you know. So um, yeah. yeah, it's really, really good. Well done on all, all your work that you've contributed to. Um, and then I suppose, is there any counselling that's available specifically for um, women that have a gynecological cancer? Definitely. Um, I know that in certain hospitals, they um, will have access to a psycho-oncology service. Um, and that's often something I discuss with patients, you know, in the aftermath. Um, as much as your physical health and well-being is important, I really believe that also so is your mental health. And sometimes people don't feel like engaging straight away. And that's absolutely fine. Sometimes it's a couple of years down the line where they now feel ready to engage. But if your treating hospital doesn't have a psycho-oncology service, I know that things like the Irish Cancer Society offer one-to-one counselling. And I think ARC do as well. I'd have to double check that. But most of those services will offer or provide you information about how to get access to counselling. And we have a directory of services and this is go.ie. And also the Irish Cancer Society has a directory of services particularly around counselling um, especially outside of Dublin and around the country which is really really important to know Brilliant Louise thank you so much is there anything that we have missed that would be important for um, for people to know um, I think 
one of the really important things is if you ever are concerned or you're ever worried about any gynae symptoms. So even if you've never had a cancer diagnosis, but you have abnormal bleeding or you have bleeding after intercourse or your abdomen is really bloated all of a sudden and it's persistent or it's affecting your ability to eat, for example, that you really go to your GP and get checked out. I can't advocate for that enough. Um, and also if you're during treatment and you have a question or a worry or a concern, please contact your team or your nurse. I've, you know, I know of patients who have said, oh, I didn't want to bother you. And it's never, ever a bother. I would rather you ring me to maybe alleviate your concerns um, than not at all. So any symptom of worry, you just get in touch with your team. Any symptom before you've ever, or even if you aren't diagnosed with anything, or you have a concern, really just make sure that you get in touch with your GP um, so you get seen and get checked out. That's all I can say for it. <laughs> mm. Thank you so much. Brilliant. Thanks, Louise. That's uh, so, so helpful. Thanks for listening to the Answers for Cancers podcast. Please share this podcast with anybody who you think it might help. Also, if you can like and subscribe, it lets people know we're here. You can alternatively contact us on Instagram at the Answers for Cancers underscore podcast. And if you have any questions on anything that we discussed today, please email us at the Answers for Cancers podcast at gmail.com or you can DM us on Instagram.